Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. Do you like riddles and puzzles, mysteries? A theologian by the name of Carl Rayner commented once that theology is about being led back into mystery, the ultimate mystery of God disclosed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the creative presence of the Spirit in the life of the world. End quote. Well, that got me thinking. Theology, remember, is about being led back into mystery, he said. Fascinating, don't you think? The ultimate mystery of God, he says. But what do you mean mystery? The dictionary defines mystery as a religious truth that no one can know only by revelation and cannot fully understand without God, or it could similarly be something beyond our understanding, an enigma. So theology is about being led back into mystery, something we cannot understand on our own. But the quote elevates the definition to yet a higher level. It says, theology is about being led back into not just any mystery, but it says the ultimate mystery of God. Nothing is higher. It is the ultimate. But it goes even further. The ultimate mystery of God, he says, was disclosed in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. If so, then is it still a mystery? Is it really an enigma? In other words, if the ultimate mystery has already been disclosed in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, then is it still really a mystery? What would you say? That, my friends, is a loaded question. The answer, I think, is yes and no. Yes, it is still a mystery to some. No, it is not a mystery to others. What makes a difference? In which group would you present yourself? Well, what do I mean? How do you decide? In which group would you place yourself to believe that the ultimate mystery of God has been revealed to mankind or to disbelieve that this has actually happened? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning. I will thwart where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God to the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. End quote. Do you see how I'm going with this? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Is it folly to you or a stumbling block? 
to those who are called Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. The ultimate mystery of God has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And can it be that I should gain, says the hymn, an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. No question about it, without controversy, the ultimate mystery has been given. And now with this message for today, here's our pastor, Alan Lee. Good morning. This is message number 11 in our ongoing exposition of the intense but vitally important and relevant epistle of Jude. We have one final message next week, Lord willing, to complete the entire series. Last week, I mistakenly said that today's message would be the last in our series, but I was mistaken. I need one more to do the job well. Now, Jude's Holy Spirit-motivated concern is the integrity and purity of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude showed that this faith is maligned, distorted, and corrupted by godless men who slyly and hypocritically creep into local churches under the pretense of being true men of God. He emphasizes the spiritual law that moral corruption naturally follows such corruption of the truth of the word of God and that God is certain to judge such apostasy. He gives a detailed description of the character, activities, and methods of such individuals in the church in order to enable the true believer to detect them before they are duped and financially fleeced by these religious charlatans. And he stresses the vital necessity for knowing the word of God to be able to do this effectively and to avoid divisions in the local body of believers as well. Now, in the concluding verses of his one chapter epistle, Jude provides some more practical guidelines as to how the believer is to contend for the faith in the midst of apostasy and those who turn away from the truth of God in order to accomplish their own ends. This change now in tone is a refreshing break from his detailed emphasis upon the ungodly attitude, behavior, and certainty of divine judgment. And so, beginning at verse 20, Jude says, and I quote, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. End of quote. Now, the but in this passage here, at the beginning of verse 20, 
makes a contrast with the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit in verse 19. Referring, of course, to the false teachers and those who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and who deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. In contrast to them, Jude is saying, the true believer is to take certain specific steps in order to effectively contend for the faith and not to be tricked or duped by such individuals. In other words, to use a metaphor Jude himself used earlier, he provides a chart for us to detect those who are hidden reefs in our assembly, and we are to avoid being shipwrecked by them if we can identify them in time. And so the first counsel he gives is that we build up ourselves in the most holy faith. Build ourselves up, he says, in our most holy faith. Now, we have already established that the most holy faith refers to the written word of God, what we now call the Bible. To build up means to strengthen or to edify. So Jude is saying once again that our first line of defense against false teachers and apostates is a thorough and accurate knowledge of the word of God. We, therefore, need to read it often and study it regularly and systematically. Paul makes specific reference for this with regards to false teachings in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. After warning the Ephesian elders about certain coming of these wolves in sheep's clothing, following his leaving, Paul says to them, and I quote, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. End of quote. If we know the truth and what it says about the character of the genuine teacher and the content of his message, then we will be able to defend ourselves and to detect false teachers and their erroneous teachings as soon as we come into contact with them. We must know the genuine in order to detect the counterfeit. My friends, I say it again. It is a proven fact that the most fertile ground for false teachers and religious charlatans are those who are not well taught in the Scriptures. Jude validates this by making this the first line of our defense against such individuals. I must pause here then to challenge you. How well do you know the Word of God, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian especially? Do you study your Bible regularly and systematically? Are you attending a church where the Word of God is regularly and consistently taught by those whom God has specifically gifted for this purpose? Do you make use of such privileges by regularly attending your church services, including your Sunday school as well? I can assure you, my friends, if you are not doing these things, you will be, in fact, you probably are, a prime target for these people that Jude has been warning us about in his epistle. They are all around us today. You must be equipped to detect and resist them by a proper use of the sword of spirit, the word of God, the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. But the second thing that Jude counsels us to do is to pray 
in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a vitally important concept here. Paul places the word of God and prayer in close proximity in describing the full armor of God in Ephesians 6 as well. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18 of this book, Ephesians 6. I quote, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. End of quote. Notice the kind of prayer that we are exhorted to pray. It is pray in the Spirit. In other words, we are to pray in the sphere of the Spirit. Or perhaps better, we are to pray prayers that are motivated by and have their source in the Holy Spirit. We are to pray spiritual prayers. But what does this mean? I believe that our answer to this question is found in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 23. Please listen as I read then the word of God for us to understand what it means to pray in the Spirit. Quote, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now notice these words. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. End of quote. This is a magnificent passage, my friends. This tells us exactly what praying in the sphere of the Spirit means. And because of its importance, I want to spend a little time on explaining this particular activity. In fact, that's one reason why I extended the series for one more message. Notice, first of all, then, the need for the Spirit's help in prayer. Verse 26 of Romans 8, the text says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Now notice, our weakness refers to our state and condition as human beings, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Paul says we are weak, or as the King James Version puts it, we are infirmed in this area. Now, this does not mean that we are only weak some of the time or only in some things. Paul is saying here that we are by nature and constitution weak in spiritual matters. But the Holy Spirit helps us in this state of weakness. Now, it's important to see the tense in this passage. It is what is called a continuous tense. It's telling us, therefore, that the Holy Spirit helps us continually. He is always helping us in this area because we are in a constant and continual state of spiritual weakness. We need him all the time to help us spiritually, and he does just that. 
He helps us continually. But notice now, the text further says, in the same way. Now, what way is that? If we don't understand the first way, we will not understand the second way. And to understand the first way, we must look at the previous verses. And so let me read verse 18 now of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently, end of quote. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is that hope sustains or supports us in our sufferings as we wait for our final redemption from a cursed creation. Now in verses 26 and 27, he tells us that in the same way hope helps us in our sufferings and groanings, so does the Holy Spirit help us in our human frailty and weakness when it comes to prayer. In verse 26, he explains a specific area of weakness on our part. Listen again as I quote it. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. In other words, we are weak in the area of our prayer life. This is a natural part of our fallen nature. We are always weak in our contact and communion with God. We cannot do this in our own strength or wisdom. We need help. We always need help in this area. The good news, my friends, is that the Holy Spirit is always providing that help. Now, be careful here. Paul is not saying that we do not know how to pray. That may be true, of course. Unlike the early disciples, we might have to ask the Lord to teach us how to pray. But what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 is the what or content of prayer. We do not know what we are to pray for. We are spiritually ignorant in this regard. We do not know the will of God in many things when it comes to prayer. We need divine help, and God has provided that help in the person of the Holy Spirit. This means, therefore, that we actually have two members of the Godhead always praying for us. First, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven as our advocate. He is there interceding for us and defending us from the accusations of the devil. But secondly, we have the Holy Spirit praying in our hearts, teaching us what to pray to our Heavenly Father for. Notice, though, how it's done. The Holy Spirit does it with groans 
that words cannot express. Please notice that carefully now. Words cannot express. So Paul tells us in this passage then that the creation groans, the believer groans, and the Holy Spirit groans. These are all expressions of deep spiritual agitation and intense spiritual emotion. They reflect the very core and essence of our innermost needs and desires. Verse 26 does not refer to praying in tongues, as some people teach. Rather, it is the Spirit who does the groaning, not the believer. And notice, it is a groan that words cannot express, not even words in another language. This is an activity of the Spirit within the believer and on behalf of the believer. Now notice, the reason and result of this spiritual activity on the part of the Holy Spirit within our innermost being is described in verse 27. And he who searches our hearts, that's God the Father, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What a beautiful passage of Scripture this is. What a wonderful truth. God searches our hearts to discover our deepest needs and longings because we are unable to adequately or correctly express them in words. And as he does so, he discovers silent, unuttered, and unutterable groanings within us. These are the intercessions of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and knows our hearts and our minds. The Father is able to understand these inner spirit-motivated groanings, intercessions, and he always responds to them positively because they are always in keeping with his will. What a beautiful truth this is. In other words, what Paul is telling us here, in keeping with what Jude is saying, is that the Holy Spirit turns the believer's deepest, innermost thoughts and desires into prayers that are in keeping with the will of God. He converts these prayers into divine groanings and places them into our hearts so that the searcher of hearts, God himself, will discover them as we pray. Friends, that's what it means to pray in the Spirit. It is a deeply, emotionally spiritual experience. It means to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit when we come before the throne of grace that we will allow him to have control of our entire being, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our thoughts, our words, even our desires. This is the only way he'll be able to convert our true desires into prayers that are heard, understood, and answered by the Father, because the contents are in keeping with his will. Again, Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is a beautiful example of what it means to pray in the Spirit. But beloved, this kind of praying takes time, takes reflection, and so we need to have time to wait in his presence. We need to have time to allow the Spirit to truly take control of our minds, our hearts, and our feelings. But now let me ask you, do we do this? Do we really wait patiently before the Lord when we pray? 
when we come to our prayer meetings, when we have our own time of prayer. Let me ask you, are our prayer meetings conducive to praying in the Spirit? Think about it. We must do this, my friends, if we are to be able to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But our time is gone for the day, unfortunately. Lord willing, we will continue our studies in this fascinating epistle next time. Until then, may God help us all to take the sword of the Spirit and to pray continually in the Spirit for His glory and our good. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. Therefore evermore to stay. The great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the saints and our toiling will be happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. Christ could come again.